Good morning, everyone. I, uh, I've been told that I have not been speaking uh, loud enough, and I will try to be louder. If anybody has problems, you need to really kind of wave like this so I'll see you, and I'll try to speak up. Also, I anticipate that I'm going to have some time at the end of this lecture before, uh, or this class before uh, our time is up. So if anybody uh, has any questions or comments about any of the classes thus far, uh, that might be the op uh, uh, an opportunity to uh, ask them. So be thinking about that. The subject this morning, as you can see, is sanctification. We're going to start in Leviticus. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Although we may not completely understand exactly what Nadab and Abihu did in regard to the strange fire, we know that they were careless, if not irreverent, in their service to God. As indicated in God's declaration to Moses, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And this incident truly has relevance for us today. We are expected to handle God's words and commands with sanctity. We are to safeguard them with the reverence due the true riches that have been committed to our trust. We aren't allowed to mix God's word with foreign concepts or our worship with secular individuals and practices. Man can approach and serve God only in the manner that he has prescribed with particular attention to faithfulness to his revelations and obedience to his commands. God's command that his people separate themselves from the influence of, the, of those who walk after the flesh has been evident ever since men began to multiply on the face of the earth. When some became designated as sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, and yet even there we find that they were choosing the daughters of men. We note God called Abram, Abram out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house for the purpose of separating and bringing him to the land which he and his seed should inherit for an eternal possession. Abraham's natural seed were likewise called out to be a separated people. And when they were brought out of Egypt to inherit the land of Canaan, they were instructed to make no covenant and no marriage with the indigenous peoples. Why? For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Further, separation meant excluding others. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. And Solomon later, de later declared, For thou didst separate them from among all the peoples of the earth to be thine inheritance, 
And Paul declares believers to be the temple of the living God, admonishing, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God's expectation that his people separate themselves is clearly established in Scripture. And yet, as we readily know, separation evokes controversy. Not just in its message, but in its application. The wisdom to understand and distinguish when associations are dangerous to our spiritual welfare comes with age and trial and experience. Nevertheless, separation is both expected and it is essential to those who will serve and approach our Heavenly Father. Now, the world around us, around us rejects such separation, preferring the praise of men for their toleration, for their ecumenicalism. And there is a real danger here for our brethren and our community, which requires our attention, because indeed this is a problem for our community also. And so at this point I want to divert our, our focus a little bit just to consider this in some uh, detail. And then we'll come back to sanctification specifically. Several months back, the advocate received a communication from a Christadelphian objecting to some printed comments addressing the manner of worship in some Christian churches. The communication objected to, quote, sweeping judgments about the worship of others while attesting to church worshipers described as, quote, sincere and truthful about their faith and worship, and admonishing, quote, let us not judge whose worship is acceptable and whose is not. Well, in truth, it is unknown how much of this complaint was focused on the described manner as opposed to the substance of church worship, or if the primary motivation was to counsel the advocate or to defend the churches. Although the writer did share the conviction that Christadelphians have, and again, a quote, far more in common, meaning with Christian churches, than we disagree on. Well, you know, aside from the proper reminder that we do need to present ourselves and the truth and the truth to others in a considered manner that they might listen. And without knowing and forming a judgment as to the faith and the practices of the writer of this letter based upon this single communication, the correspondence raises the issue of separateness from the world. And in the light of prophetic descriptions and pronouncements, specifically separation from apostate Christianity. Well, why bring this up? Is this really a problem? What's wrong with fraternization with the churches of Christendom or with those churches' sincere and truthful adherence? In Revelations chapter 17 and 18, which Christ sent and signified through John, the apostate system wielding worldwide influence was, is presented there as mystery battle in the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The judgment of the great horror was shown to John, followed by that voice from heaven instructing, 
Come out of her, my people, that she be not partakers of her sins, and that she receive not of her plagues. And as a former advocate editor wrote, We as students of the Apocalypse must come to the conclusion that the Babylon portrayed in chapters 17, 18, and 19 is that great ecclesiastical system of the papacy. This corporate apostasy is identified by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, and 9. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. Now I would think that anyone or anything that the Lord defines to be wicked, we should not have any sympathy or affection for. The great enemy of Christ is outlined in the apocalypse is his papal system. So what is to be our attitude? Most of us recognize that it is the general posture of people today, and churches in particular, to exhibit a kindly spirit of tolerance to all religions. Part of belief of the truth is a recognition of the apostate ecclesiastical Babylon for what it is, one who claims to sit as God, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, full of names of blasphemy, drunken with the blood of the saints, with whom all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What further incrimination do we need? We are told to come out of her, my people, that she be not partakers of her sins. Let us make sure that we observe this distinction if we are to be known as my people. And of course, this is fresh on our minds from the previous class. It is essential that we understand the significance and the extent of this warning in coming out of or separating ourselves from the blasphemies and abominations associated with the apostate system. Those who don't separate themselves surely do not understand those blasphemies that that, that those churches represent. Do we indeed have far more in common than we disagree on? Well, this brings us back to the earlier comment that separation in today's world evokes controversy, particularly as it's applied. It's easy to come out from those we recognize as antagonistic to us or to our beliefs or our values. While it is natural that we feel kindly toward those that we get along with or at work or in study or at play, and perhaps perceiving them to be much like us. Although it appears that the churches of the world may worship the same God, we know, brothers and sisters, that their errors constitute another gospel that is abhorrent to God. And yet today there seems to be surfacing this new order of thinking, particularly among young Christadelphians, pushing back against the exclusiveness of Christadelphian teachings and adopting a non-judgmental, inclusive approach in its place. Although we observe this most prominently in relation to amended and CGAF situations, beyond that, are we witnessing a movement toward ecumenicalism where a confession of belief in Jesus and the confessor's sincerity become the overriding elements of unity despite major differences in belief? And would not those differences in belief have to be pushed to the background and avoided as too controversial in order to maintain such a unity? Of course they will. 
And yes, there are undoubtedly those within the Christian churches that are indeed sincere and truthful about their faith and worship, just as there are Muslims who are sincere and truthful about their beliefs. Yet sincerity is not an indicator of God's truth or righteousness, as seen in the beliefs and the values and the practices of today's Christian churches and their adherents. As Paul declared concerning Israel's failing, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So there's this challenge that has to be issued. When we find ourselves with acquaintances, maybe friends, outside the household, are we willing to risk offense or hostility by confessing our faith? Do we invite them to reason together with us from the scriptures? And do we testify to the truth in contrast to the errors of church doctrine, particularly to somebody that we think is very sincere and into what they believe? We must be aware that with few exceptions, mainstream Christianity today denies the inspiration of the Bible, exchanges God's truth for relativism, and worships in unbelief of God's word and God's way. And yet, even ecumenicalism has its limits. If they understood Christadelphian beliefs on death and resurrection, if they understood our beliefs on the exclusiveness of who would be called to judgment or our denial of the Trinity, or that Christ is coming to deliver God's judgments upon the earth and establish the kingdom of God, and that our hope is to reign with him as rulers and priests, might not these beliefs constitute a wedge between us? After all, what do these beliefs have in common with Christianity's immortal soul, heaven-going, the devil or demons, or a non-judgmental God offering universal grace to all regardless of their creed or affiliation? How many of today's Christians believe that God created the earth as recorded in Genesis? That the flood was a worldwide event killing all but those in the ark? That God ordered the destruction of the nations of Canaan when he brought his people out of Egypt? Or that the destruction he declares awaits the powers and the peoples of this age at the hand of Christ and the saints? How many believe in Armageddon? And surely, brothers and sisters, we can have no part with those who profess or support homosexuality, who confess evolution and reject the Genesis account of creation, who trust in men to lead them in jurisprudence and war, or with those misled by the popular theory of a coming Antichrist. And those people will thereby mistake Christ at his return for that Antichrist. Some might believe that their Christian friends worship the same God. But doctrinal distinctions are lost within ecumenicalism. They may merely be viewing our beliefs with the equal indifference that they view their own beliefs. Professing as many mainstream Christians do today that all religions, no matter how diverse, teach equally valued truths. 
they believe that. They truly believe that. We need to take care that we do not project such an attitude. Christianity today is of the world. So corrupt and infiltrated with humanistic beliefs and attitudes that their confessions of God and Jesus amount to little more than lip service. And this is nothing new. It was the corruption and the false teaching that caused Dr. Thomas to abandon the churches in his day. Robert Roberts, over 120 years ago, wrote the following in Christian Demonstrate. He said, if the ordinary Christian is not of the world, where are we to find the people that are? To call a man a man of the world has, in fact, become one of the highest compliments that can be paid to a man's judgment and culture. As a man at home everywhere, he's who sees good in everything and nothing very wrong in anything. In the ears of such a man, the distinctions and scrupulosities enjoined by Christ and his apostles have an antiquated sound, and worse, a sound of uncharity, of harshness, of narrow-minded and bigoted sectarianism. The earnest recognition and observance of right and wrong as arising out of the law of Christ are in his eyes the symptoms of an odious fanaticism, disqualifying the subject of them for society or the commonest good fellowship. And we find that this attitude, as we heard in the first class this morning, exists within the Christadelphian body too. That we have a antiquated sound. Brethren, this is not to mock the churches or those who worship in ignorance of God's word. Many of them probably do believe that's the right thing to do. That's all they know. But rather, as scripture does over and over again, it is to warn of the dangers of fraternization with apostasy. Approach correctly. That sincere and truthful member of the church might be an individual who might respond to a sincere attempt to show them God's truth. However, if we grant them false confidence in their errors through perceived friendship on our part with their beliefs and their worship, we fail to manifest our faith and we fail to show them the way to salvation. Like our Lord, we are not to be of this world though being separate is very uncomfortable at times. And yet our calling is to keep his truth and ourselves undefiled. Christadelphians are not merely one among many branches of Christianity. And for the most part, when assumed corresponding beliefs are examined, their similarity proves to be superficial. We would be wise to consider the example of our pioneers, who having found the truth came out and stood apart from the churches, refusing to compromise their distinctive beliefs. Rather than association, they debated with the churches and they rejoiced in being a sect everywhere spoken against. Let's go back to sanctification specifically. Our Heavenly Father has made it clear in his revelations to us that he is jealous for his holy name and he requires those who would approach him that they believe, that they obey, and they revere him. We're told, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. 
as Brother Roberts expounded upon in the Law of Moses, that God should dwell with men at all was esteemed by Solomon a great condescension. That he should dwell with unclean and rebellious man seemed contrary to the fitness of things. In a sense, it was so, as is shown by the reservations by which the condescension was safeguarded. The erection of the tabernacle was an intimation of his willingness to be approached by man for mercy, but not at the sacrifice of his holiness or his authority or his majesty. Hence, familiar and indiscriminate approach was not invited. I will be sanctified in them that approach unto me. Take note. Familiar and indiscriminate approach was not invited. You know, I have a personal story from my own experience. This was years ago, and I worked for the state, and we were going down, had to, a few people had to go down to the central office for a meeting, and uh, this, this young uh, lady uh, rode with me, and boy, she was, this, this young lady rode with, you know, somebody just told me the other day that I, uh, when, when I start reflecting on something, I get real low, <laughs> So this this young lady was going to go to ride down to to the central office with me, and boy, she was a born again Christian, and everybody knew her there. It was Jesus this and Jesus that, and uh, this was my first real experience with her, and she just talked talked Jesus the whole way, and I can't tell you how many times she would say something about Jesus and then say, "He's so cute, he's so cute." In her imagined conversations that she shared with me. She pictured Jesus and presented Jesus as this good friend of hers, almost someone on her level, not the manifestation of the Word of God, not our Savior and High Priest, but somebody that you could joke with. That is indiscriminate and familiar approach. We began this review with a slide of Leviticus 10 regarding Nadab and Abihu and their failure to sanctify God. And we might feel a little sympathy for Nadab and Abihu in regard to that judgment passed upon them, particularly in light of God's express command that there should be no mourning for their deaths. That's a warning to us. However, the case of Moses is perhaps more troubling and should be cause for both fear and reflection upon our Heavenly Father's expectations for us. We note, Moses served God faithfully in the plagues upon Egypt, the crossing of the sea, and the miracles in the wilderness. Paul describes Moses as faithful in all his house, as a servant, for a testimony of those things that were to be spoken after. However, in the matter of the water of Meribah, Moses failed to follow God's instructions as commanded and as a result was not allowed to enter the promised land. Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Now this is another one of those things that grabs my attention and... and, uh, frightens me into self-examination. Because again, this is something else I could consider, I could conceive of myself doing. Again, they carried away with that, with passion and zeal. 
and in so doing, leaning to my own understanding, doing what seemed right or natural at the time in my own eyes. And this is motivation, I think, for greater understanding and greater attention to what our Creator expects and to keep His demands in the forefront of our mind all the, all the time, particularly when we are being zealous for His namesake. Though Moses was blessed by God with spirit gifts, it conferred no immunity from error a fact demonstrated through the examples given us of other chosen men, such as Balaam and Samson and Solomon. That he who take, who think he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Now what exactly, what exactly does the word sanctify mean? I'm not sure how often we, we use the word. Well, Strong's defines the translated Hebrew and Greek words that are translated sanctify, uh, uh, Sanctify to mean to be set apart, to be holy, sacred, consecrated. Paul, speaking of those sanctified in Jesus, addresses sanctification as a status conferred by God rather than a matter of personal conduct. Let me repeat that. As a status conferred by God rather than a matter of personal conduct. Hebrews 2.11 For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. And Jude likewise says, To them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So the sanctified by God the Father. And notice that Peter addresses in his first, uh, in his first epistle, he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now note in that last verse, the choosing of believers here seems to be attributed to the foreknowledge of the Father and obedience attributed to sanctification. And though men might be inclined to attribute sanctification before God to their own efforts, I don't believe this is the case, though we do have to maintain that status after responding to the call. Paul instructs, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the attaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through foreknowledge, God knows who will respond to his call. And it is his call that we, that we respond to, not something that naturally pops up in, in our head. This sanctification does not imply continued obedience, nor does it guarantee ultimate salvation. And indeed, we are told to apply diligence to make our calling and election sure. However, we also note the following definition for the Greek word agazo. It means to sanctify, set apart, make holy, 
And this can mean active dedication and service to God or the act of regarding or honoring as holy. And, we, and thus we read of sanctification applied to man's attitudes and actions as described in 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now, if God chooses us through sanctification of the Spirit, and sanctification is a status that he bestows upon us, does it not seem a contradiction that we, through our feeble attitudes and actions, can sanctify God? Well, keeping in mind that sanctity means to be set apart, to be holy, sacred, and consecrated, the best we can do is recognize and respond appropriately to God's sanctity, which is what he expects of us. And uh, this usage seems to use uh, metonymy. It's a figure of speech through which one uses the name of one thing by that of another associated with or suggested by it. And in this manner, acts of sanctification are attributed to us. However, we do not grant sanctification, but merely recognize the sanctity of God and respond appropriately to it. We are to believe and act upon God's calling by separating and dedicating ourselves as expounded throughout the scripture in the command to sanctify yourselves and sanctify the Lord of hosts. In baptism, we, like Israel in the wilderness, have covenanted all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And in that manner, we sanctify. But there's a danger here should we believe that it is we who sanctify ourselves by rigorous attention to the things of God and abstention from the things of the world. Because such a view gives glory to man and contradicts the plan and the grace of God. Do we not understand that God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the base and the, the despised things of this world, lest any man should boast? As Brother Wayne Tanner pointed out in his book that Sanctification and Reconciliation, he said, Sanctification means to cleanse, to purify, and set apart or consecrate, thus addressing the uncleanness of man resulting from a sentence which in effect defiled and, and became a physical law of his being. And yet when we let God's word work in us, we are transformed to reflect his virtues. The source of our sanctification is declared in 1 Corinthians 1, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Christ, by his perfect faith and obedience, sanctified himself that we might be sanctified through him. In John 17:9, Christ prayed, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Salvation is through Christ. And sanctification is nothing less than unity with God through his Son. Christ's sanctification is imputed to us. God calls men to approach him in an appointed manner. 
a way which discerns and sanctifies. Scriptural examples are written for our learning to engender our attentive regard to his requirements and his appointments, through which we sanctify his name. So how do we sanctify our Heavenly Father today? How do we render, as Strong's definition asserts, active dedication and service to God and regard and honor for his holiness? We live by faith. These are the last days. Days when the signs of prophetic fulfillment are accomplished seemingly within the natural order of events, and therefore the world doesn't recognize them. And his care for us occurs within the scope of seemingly normal daily circumstances. We might not recognize it if we're not aware. Our trust and confidence is based upon our belief in his word, and it is that word through which we might know and recognize and serve and come nigh our Creator. As we earlier read, we have been chosen through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Over and over, God has made it clear, we must believe Him. Now, it would seem a simple and logical thing to believe God when you consider the miracles and the prophecies fulfilled and the personal testimonies recorded for us. But mankind's failure to believe is proven to be a primary barrier to faith. Men choose to believe the lie over God. And over and over we've seen God's disappointment in this lack of trust and respect. As when he said to Moses, How long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? What disappointment. God chose to reveal himself to mankind through the word, defined as the law and the testimony by Isaiah. And in the absence of that word, we would be in total darkness, cut off, alienated from God. God has magnified his word. Through the spirit, John declares, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. In Elpis Israel, Brother Thomas defines the word of word as God's instrument of holiness and purification, summarizing that among other things, it loosens men's attachment to earthly things. It causes men to place their affection on things above, and it creates that new and that right spirit within man. David declared God's testimony to be sure and right, and he begins the Psalms with the description of the blessed man as one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Such blessedness is contingent upon our daily reading and meditating upon his word. For he has appointed it for our edification and sanctification. As we learn from Moses' example at Meribah, God's God's expectations are specific, they're non-negotiable, And we must strive to understand and respond in the manner prescribed. God's admonition to Moses regarding the design of the tabernacle and the contents was, See that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee. See that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee. And this attention must be the standard we hold in all aspects of our worship and our service to him. God will not be approached in a familiar or indiscriminate manner. We sanctify our Creator by believing, by believing and obeying Him. 
Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrificial death, has sanctified himself that we may be sanctified. And for their sakes, I I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. He is the focus of our sanctification and of our hope. For we are they that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1-2 And we must offer no less than our very very best to emulate his example. In our Lord we have life, and when we delight in the things that he delights in, and when God's law is in our hearts, and the vanities of the, the vanities of the world and the flesh, you know, just have to naturally lose their appeal. Our failings serve to keep us humble, and our diet of the word should both lessen those failures and strengthen our love and dedication. And indeed, brethren, as Brother Brother Roberts took note of how breathtaking it is that the Creator of heaven and earth should seek out a people for his name from among sinful mankind. And how joyful the prospect that we have hope of attaining unto the glory that awaits those who prevail. Looks like we've got about five minutes left. Anybody would like to make a comment or... uh, Don't make me start. Don't make me start this lesson over here. <laughs> I'm teasing. Yeah. Yes. Oh yes, yes. Oh, uh, we. Uh, the question was, uh, did the advocate respond to the person to the Christadelphian who wrote that? About who wrote that about their good friends who are uh, who are sincere uh, in worship? Yes, uh, we responded to that individual twice. Uh, we responded, and I think they responded, and, they, and we, we we responded again. So. Anything else? Well, yeah. uh, I don't think so, no. There was no indication that there was a successful uh, uh, resolution. All you can, all you can do is put put the truth out there. You know, it's per adventure God will give them ability to acknowledge. You know. Okay, thank you.